a universal human dilemma. It's aggressive questioning of life. A prince contemplates suicide with thoughts of murderous revenge. In a tragedy known the world over, yet constantly told anew. It's almost a kind of sacred text. In this episode of the Glyndebourne podcast, we're taking a close look at Hamlet, a new opera by composer Brett Dean and librettist Matthew Jocelyn, which premieres at the 2017 Glyndebourne Festival. Welcome to the Glyndebourne podcast. I'm Katie Derham. Hamlet has been realised in thousands of versions. The story of the Danish prince whose father is murdered by his uncle, who then marries Hamlet's mother, is amongst the most thought-provoking of all Shakespeare's tragedies. Composer Brett Dean and librettist Matthew Jocelyn approached creating a new Hamlet opera for Glyndebourne in eager anticipation of working with Shakespeare's magnificent text. And maybe a little trepidation, given its reputation. I'd studied some Shakespeare at school and can't really, you know, call myself a Shakespeare expert by any means or or even prior to this experience a, a real devotee and I must say that one of the things that that has been so wonderful for me in this whole whole venture and also in in meeting and working with Matthew is is the extent to which it's opened a, a world for me you know the more I delved into it and the more we delved into it together the more I realized just how exciting this project was. My first real in contact with Hamlet uh, came nearly 30 years ago, 28 years ago, when I was living in France and I was the assistant to the great French director Patrice Chéreau for his production of Hamlet at the Festival d'Avignon. And part of my responsibility being an Anglophone was to do the forensic work into the, into the text in order to suggest alterations for the for the translation. So I had lived with that text in that way, in that kind of minutious way, three decades ago, and um, had never worked on it since. So it really felt that it was like diving into this mm, pool of raw material. For an actor, playing Hamlet can make your career. John Gielgud, Laurence Olivier, David Tennant, Mark Rylance, Samuel West, Maxine Peake, they've all taken on the role of the Danish prince to great acclaim. The appeal of this great character was not lost on tenor Alan Clayton, who didn't hesitate to take on the title role in this new opera. I think a lot of sort of singer actors, if I put myself in that bracket, rather than sort of, you know, in incredibly beautifully lyrical singers, um, want to tackle interesting parts um, dramatically and theatrically alongside challenging music and vocal writing. So the opportunity to play this role, you know, known as the most tricky, if not uh, the hardest Shakespeare uh, male role, 
was one that I couldn't possibly pass up, um, even though you know I was aware that it was going to be going to be quite a challenge. I don't know what it's going to be like to, to sing this role, so it's an exploration for everyone in the rehearsal room, and and you feel very honoured to be to have someone, anybody, um, but especially someone of, of Brett's calibre, writing for your voice. This is the very ecstasy of love. The very ecstasy. Surmise, surmise, is metal more attractive? Green colour, green colour. I met him in 2014 when I was in Melbourne and went to his studio and he recorded me speaking the um, famous monologue to be or not to be a few times just to see how it lay in my speaking voice um, because Sprechstimmer and Sprechgesang are such a big part of Brett's vocal writing. Sort of a, a speaking style of singing so it's a bit it's not quite full-on operatic singing and it's not just straight talking it's it's pitched um, speaking. So to be in right at the beginning like that before a, a s- sort of basic synopsis had been formed or anything it was incredibly exciting and He's always fantastic at, at um, reviewing what he's written. He's not stubborn in any way. He's, he, he, it's very much a, a collaborative process. Shakespeare's Hamlet exists in three original versions. The first quarto, or so-called bad quarto, the second, or good quarto, and the first folio, the most fully realised version of the play. There are line changes, sections moved and added, it's Shakespeare revising his work over three decades. Shakespeare scholar Anne Thompson. There are quite substantial differences between the three versions. Apart from being much shorter, the first version rearranges some of the material. Most notably, to be or not to be comes much earlier in that version than it does in the other two versions. And that has often happened, in fact, on stage, not because people give any authority to that version, but because they feel it makes more sense to have to be or not to be come about 500 lines earlier than it does in the so-called good texts. Um, Because in the longer texts, it comes very soon after... Hamlet has devised the mousetrap as a plot. He sort of goes off at the end of Act Two saying, the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And then about 50 lines later, he comes back on saying to be or not to be and contemplating suicide, which doesn't make a lot of sense and he doesn't seem to know that he's got a plan. Um, So it does make sense to have that earlier or even, as in the Peter Brook, version to have it much later. Um, Hamlet's last soliloquy, how all occasions do inform against me and spur my dull revenge, which is missing entirely from the first folio, is replaced in Peter Brook's version by to be or not to be uh, in Act 4 <laughs> rather than in Act 2 or Act 3. Um, so in a sense from the very beginning the, these very famous speeches are sort of portable. You can move them around in the play and probably most people won't notice. For Brett Dean and Matthew Jocelyn, these Shakespearean rewrites were liberating. There is no such thing as Hamlet. There is no definitive text of Hamlet upon which all scholars agree and and all people of the theatre agree. And so we just 
allowed ourselves to pick and choose. So the process involved mostly deciding what narrative we wanted to tell, in which order we wanted to lay the scenes out. And the other fundamental decision from the beginning was that the entire text would be Shakespeare. I remember in the early stages where I'd kind of outed myself as, yes, I'm going to write a Hamlet opera, a lot of the responses were, ooh, Hamlet, eh? That's big, you know? And uh, it was quite... It was quite off-putting for a time. This Hamlet opera is the result of several years' work and shorter study pieces produced by Breton Matthew, which explore themes and moments from the play. One of the pieces is called From Melodious Lay, which was premiered by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. And there's also Brett's second string quartet called And Once I Played Ophelia. Much of the music from these pieces has become part of the final Hamlet score. For both of us, it was, it was an important step then to try a, a smaller piece to come to terms with that, to, to feel how the text felt from a setting point of view and to realise also that rhythms are so multifarious and, and fascinating and... You know, he's forever sort of undoing his own pentameter rules anyway. And, and so it was just the, 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 the rhythms bubble and, and burst and, and ebb and flow so fabulously that, you know, I, I was enjoying it from, from day one. Hamlet's relationship with Ophelia is tumultuous and frequently hurtful. She believes he loved her. He swears he never did. In one of the play's most famous scenes, the get thee to a nunnery scene, Hamlet is tricked by Ophelia into thinking they're speaking in private. But really, her father Polonius is listening. When Hamlet realises this betrayal, any hope for their love is gone. Ophelia has chosen her family, but has lost her love in the process, and it drives her to madness. It's one of the scenes that most fascinates tenor Alan Clayton. This is Alan as Hamlet and soprano Alison Bell as Ophelia in a version of the scene in Brett Dean's orchestral work from Melodious Lay. Ophelia is, is sort of gasping for air and, and really using the, you know, Brett loves to use every bit of the human voice, ugly or not. The duet is all based on this sort of really aggressive repeated A in the, in the violins and, and, and the string, string orchestra. It's, it's a real moment of, of, of such a tense moment between Hamlet and 
Ophelia and comes comes out of this sort of reverie where Hamlet has been saying, I did love thee once um, to Ophelia. And then he's, he, he flips and that's it. He's gone straight away into, into this sort of pushing her away and, and Ophelia is completely taken aback by this. And the, the music responds to that and is, is terrifying and, and beautiful at the same time. includes the most famous of all Shakespeare's soliloquies. It hardly needs an introduction. It's almost a kind of sacred text. I don't think there's a single bit in the piece that we discussed and had more toing and froing about than to be or not to be. And in the end, for me, the key was in the first quarto, a version that as much of the first quarto is, it's familiar yet different, it's shorter, it has its own sometimes quite strange poetry about it. And I think it was that once removed that helped me in that particular instance to overcome a kind of a block, I must say, that I did feel with that particular, that particular speech. And then one day in Berlin, um, as we were talking about this, I just had the idea of doing, doing a duet and so wrote the piece as a duet between Hamlet and Ophelia, because Ophelia is a present during that soliloquy, and it felt that there was interesting material there to create a real, if not an active dialogue, at least a dialogue of minds, that she has her thoughts, she has her fears, he has his thoughts, he has his, his fears or his wonderings, and they meet or complete each other or complement each other. So I worked on that for quite some time. Tenor Alan Clayton again. I found myself getting quite angry reading it. It's, you know, he uses this, this sort of martial language, slings and arrows and grunts and all these sort of very earthy words and, and um, militaristic terms. To me, he, it's, it's, it's uneasy. It's not, it's not a sort of whimsical monologue on, on life and what might be and what isn't. It's far more of a, a aggressive questioning of life and Hamlet's place in life. This internal struggle speaks to all of us. Death is universal. But Hamlet isn't just tragic. It's about the fullness of human experience. There is in the Shakespeare a great deal of humour. It's easy to, to, to miss that. And it's something that we... We emphasized both in the writing, but I think it's it's extraordinary the capacity of music to transmit humor as well, and the both in terms of rhythms and in terms of harmonies and in terms of punctuation or um, or counter rhythms, how humor can become a really audible thing in the music, and it's it's been a big part of this process. Undertaking a new Hamlet opera 
inevitably brings with it high expectations from an audience, many of whom will know this almost sacred text inside out. I hope they get a thrilling night in the theatre. I hope it, it, it's chilling and funny and heartbreaking. I really hope that they are enthused simply by a new story, by, by a Hamlet in which there are things that are recognisable, but in which there's a, a new manner of telling the story and an extraordinarily rich palette of music that is bringing this text to life in a way in which we've never heard it before. There's a wonderful um, section beginning, There is a Willow, and there's just a, a wonderful use of the, I think, the contra bass clarinet. And then on top of that, or really in the middle of that, you have the sort of soprano and the tenor sort of weaving in and out of it, these sort of extraordinary phrases, particularly for the soprano. And I can't wait to hear that in the, in the theatre. It's going to be, I think, a real sonic experience for everyone. And for those involved intimately in the creation of this work, Hamlet is a ghost that won't rest. It, it will never leave me entirely, and, and, and I will always, A, be grateful for having had the opportunity to spend two and a half, three years really getting my hands dirty with this material. <coughs> Excuse me. But also... Um, but also the elasticity that Shakespeare allows. What an extraordinary, extraordinary poet he is to have left us this stuff to play with. Thanks for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast with me, Katie Derham. The music extracts you've been listening to in this podcast are from Brett Dean's From Melodious Lay, commissioned and recorded by BBC Radio 3 and given its world premiere by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joshua Weilerstein at the Barbican on Tuesday the 1st of November 2016. With thanks to the Barbican Centre and the Corporation of London. Music, courtesy of Boozy and Hawks Music Publishers Limited. You can hear more artists and musicians discussing some of the greatest operas ever written in our podcast archive. From Mozart to Janacek, Verdi to Britain, each episode delves into the music and magic of a work in detail. And there's more Hamlet there too. In another Glyndebourne podcast, actor Samuel West, who's played Hamlet at the Royal Shakespeare Company, is in conversation with Alan Clayton, revealing fascinating insights into the Danish prince. Mm -hmm.